Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Okay, welcome to the GDI podcast. I'm with Phil Woodhouse, Professor of Environment and Development at the Global Development Institute, and Professor Dan Brockington, Director of the Sheffield Institute for International Development. We'll be talking today about their research product, project, which is called SAFI, Studying African Farmer-Led Irrigation. So Phil, can you tell me, how did this project come about? Okay, I think it really... Um grew out of work that, uh, that was done by our collaborators at Wageningen University. That was Gert-Jan uh, Veltwisch and Jean-Philippe Venot. And um, they had uh, been doing some work on irrigation in Mozambique and indeed uh, had found that uh, one of the, in, in central Mozambique there was an awful lot more irrigation than, than official figures suggested. And the other interesting aspect was the more detailed that they, they went in looking. So from uh, looking at seven districts, they went down to three districts and then down to one district. The more detailed, more local they went, the more irrigation they found. So this raised all kinds of questions about what was going on. And um, I had written uh, something about, uh, I'd written a book chapter about uh, Water in African Agronomy, which talked about a series of blind spots, as I saw them, in the way official, official uh, agricultural science saw the use of water in uh, African agriculture. And they picked up on this and they approached me. Uh, I remember they telephoned me while I was driving a car in, uh, in South Africa and I parked up. And we had a long conversation uh, while I was in the car. And uh, it was really out of that that the idea of doing this project uh, came out. And it was in response to a DFID call uh, for, for work, which specifically raised the question of why isn't there more irrigation in Africa? And so we put together this, basing it on our pooled perceptions, really. And then we brought in Dan Rockington. Yeah, Dan, tell us a little bit about your involvement and also your institute's involvement. Well, I was... Um, invited up to, to join the team because I'd worked for a long time in Tanzania and was exploring um, long-term changes in livelihood and indices of prosperity and had a, also a, a, um, a long-standing interest in the use and variety of different sorts of data to measure development. Mm-hmm. And I was particularly uh, intrigued and attracted by this project partly because of the um, years of experience that Phil brought to it but also because the collaboration was just a really exciting one. It, it stemmed from work that Khadjan um, had done in Mozambique um, with our Mozambican collaborator Angela Mangici from the Instituto Superior Politico de Manica in Chimoyo, um, which had showed this great gulf in the levels of irrigation that were thought to be taking place and appeared actually to be taking place. And that chimed as well with the work of our Tanzanian um, colleague Hans Komakek from the um, Nelson Mandela Institute for African Institute for Science and Technology in Arusha, um, who with Jan had been looking at the um, development of irrigation in Kilimanjaro. So you had this um, really interesting in- collaboration already in existence, 
um, forged in Tanzania and Mozambique, which then had ready-made for it this, this call coming out of research possibilities in the UK. Fantastic. So it sounds like quite a challenging research project. What were some of the challenges that you ran into? Um, I think there are a couple which I would <coughs> identify in a sense that um, we were dealing with a situation, with, with a topic uh, in which at least in some quarters of irrigation policy makers, uh, the idea that there was irrigation activity that was going on that wasn't actually planned and officially sanctioned was not exactly welcome. That was one issue which I think uh, continues to be a question mark over how much impact the research will have. But I think the other was the, the sheer logistics of working in areas which, certainly in the Mozambican case, were quite remote um, hilly areas in the centre of Mozambique. Um, and certainly at one point while we were doing research, we were delayed by security problems uh, due to uh, political um, contestation, let's say, within, within Mozambique. Uh, and then by floods, um, which meant that areas were ruled out. Uh, that applied both in Mozambique and in Tanzania, where parts of the year you simply couldn't get to the field areas that we wanted to work in because the, they were flooded, or at least the, the, the roads were flooded. So there, there were sort of logistical problems, but also to some extent um, ideological issues to overcome. But if you compare this to other projects that I've been involved in, it's remarkable for it being challenge-free. This is a thing that we came to came around and came to look forward to because it didn't have the problems that you'd find in other projects. Um, it's in no small part um, due to the fact that it's managed and administered by Catherine Hall, who seems to just walk on water, particularly irrigation water. So and it worked to hear that. really, really well. You, you said that. Um, unplanned irrigation isn't always welcome. So did that make people a little bit reluctant to kind of engage at first? Um, it was an issue that was raised at our initial uh, inception meetings, which we had in Tanzania and Mozambique, um, where you would have people saying, well, actually, um, you know, farmers need to be properly guided in using irrigation and I think that's still a, an important um, policy theme that uh, government's response is always to say well farmers need to be organised, they need to be monitored, they need to be regulated and so forth and I, I'm sympathetic with, with some of those views in the sense that if people want support then they have to be visible to, to agencies that are trying to support them um, but uh, I think just accepting the idea that farmers have been developing irrigation under their own steam and without direction by government agencies has, has not necessarily been a particularly welcome idea for public discussion, let's say. Um, I mean, I think one of the sort of challenges in terms of getting the findings of the, of the project across are uh, presenting the, the, the information we have on, on irrigation as facts 
not as some sort of desirable thing that people want to happen, but this is just happening. The question then is not what do we want farmers to do, but what, do, what should governments do or other development agencies? Given that farmers are already taking these actions, what should then be the, the uh, response of, of development agencies? And turning things around that way, uh, I find quite... Um, uh, find di- I quite, find it quite difficult to get across. Often, the response assumes that we're advocating uh, that farmers should do things. And we're not necessarily saying that. We're just saying farmers are doing this. Now, what should the response of development agencies be? And that sort of, in a sense, turns things on on its head a bit. Uh, and that's a dialogue which is often not not properly understood. But it is fascinating because there are three fundamental findings that I think that's come out of this project Um, and the first is that there are many different forms of irrigation that aren't actually recognised as irrigation. As Phil says it's just called moving water around fields it's not actually irrigation in, in the official mindset which doesn't well capture what farmers are doing with water on their fields. Most people would actually look at those practices and call them irrigation if you recognise that variety suddenly there's a lot more irrigation happening moreover and this is the second big finding um, you can count um, through different means um, considerable areas of irrigation that are taking place and which are not actually recognised or even known about as as happening so there's much more of this going on than we've previously realised and this is a fascinating thing. So if you call in the planners from a, a particular country, I won't name it, and say, look, um, we think um, there's loads more irrigation taking place. We think actually you've met your targets for increased irrigation, which you want to achieve in five or ten years' time. You've met them already. You met them four years ago. And you would expect them to say, that's fantastic, that's great. And they don't. They say, no, I'm not going to my minister and telling him that the targets we set five years ago were wrong, that irrigation isn't happening unless I call it irrigation. Now, I am paraphrasing very closely those exact words, but that is almost exactly what this extremely important official said. And so there is, as Phil observed, this curious um, reluctance to recognise that these practices are taking place on the ground. But the significance for then government support is is remarkable because if you're trying to expand from scratch irrigation areas, then you're looking to build large dams, um, flatten and level fields, you've got to um, set up whole new schemes and it's extremely expensive. If that land is being irrigated already, then the forms of support are actually much cheaper. You can reach many more farmers for much less money and for far more easily but you do need to reach them in a different way it requires a different form of policy intervention mm. and so will engaging with policy makers be part of the scope of this project like as in to get them to really listen here and oh it has been and re- yeah, it, yeah, not will. it has been really from the off I yeah. think um, we had the inception workshops right at the start and that's really where we there were a couple of things we learned from that one was this sort of slight antipathy in some quarters to the idea of farmer-led irrigation. Um, But the other was also that farmers don't work in isolation. Um, And and we, in a sense, we had to 
redefine what we meant by farmer-led irrigation. It wasn't that farmers are kind of doing it entirely on their own, but they are taking initiatives, um, but they tend to try and draw in all kinds of support where they can. In other words, they're not... I, I think that... I mean, we saw situations where people had had tapped into a bit of money from a district government, for example, or from NGOs, uh, and um, had tried to improve the irrigation that they were doing um, by cementing channels to make sure they didn't lose so much water and things like that. And so, and, and some of these things have quite a long history of you know, progressively developing the amount of irrigation that they were doing. Um, so we... You know, rather than seeing this as farmer-led, as being farmers on their own, we had to see, and we kind of changed our definitions, really, mm. and we sort of, so we started saying, okay, uh, farmers are not doing, are not disengaged. We started talking about different kinds of engagement between farmers and government and any other agencies. Contractors, for example, who would put out... Um Demands or for, for lettuce or carrots or whatever vegetables for um, comfort for, for businesses that were employing large numbers of people and needed to feed them. And I think the other big sort of slight dis, uh, disjuncture, I suppose, from from um, common perceptions is that almost a fact. I can't think of any instance where we haven't looked at this kind of irrigation where it hasn't been commercially driven. In other words, farmers are, are, are taking these steps in order to generate income. And so they are growing crops for sale. Uh, and this, again, is, is a slight uh, difference from the way um, many official perceptions work, that small-scale farmers who are using not particularly sophisticated technology uh, are seen as almost by definition people in need of improvement um, and part of that improvement is being more interested in markets and growing for the market whereas these people are growing for the market so um, you know again in, in very in, in, in difficult to get to areas you can find crops that are essentially being grown commercially uh, and when they're ready, the farmer will phone up the trader using mobile phone and the trader will come and harvest that crop and take it to market, often in a big city, sometimes quite far away. Um, and so these are commercially oriented people, commercially minded people who just don't fit the official category of what a commercial farmer should look like. Doesn't fit the, the categories of what how irrigation is practiced. The policy documents divide farmers into commercial farmers and subsistence farmers, and we just don't find that. We find that what they call small-scale traditional or subsistence farming is undertaken for commercial purposes. So lo- lots of learning for all policymakers. I think so. Throughout yes. the, the project, yeah. beyond irrigation policy, do the findings of your research have wider implications for other sort of? planning officers or development professionals? Well, water use, certainly, yeah. um, because water use is contested by um, the power generators, by the wildlife and conservation interests, by people planning forestry and river basin management. All of those are really interested in irrigation activities and how much irrigation is going on. And this is where we have to be really cautious because you tend to find that 
the views and, and positions taken in these debates are already fairly clearly well defined um, and people haven't needed very good data to adopt those positions. So if you start coming with a bunch of new data that doesn't necessarily bring light and clarity it could just add fuel to a fairly heated argument. I want to go back to the findings. You mentioned there were three key findings. We talked about many forms of irrigation, considerable areas that are being irrigated that we didn't know about. Did we get the third one? So it's value to farmers. That's farmers are much three. better off once they're irrigated. And this is very clear. I mean, we've got a sample of, what, 2,500, 2,700 irrigators and non-irrigators altogether. And it's very clear if you compare the farmers who are irrigating with those who are not irrigating on a whole series of measures, they're better off. Um, and you could say, well, it was only better off farmers who were farming in the first place. But we also know that for irrigators, I think it's on the order of 80-odd percent of irrigators, irrigated agriculture, irrigated crops, form a half or more than half their income. In other words, these are not necessarily people who have big business interests or other forms of income who are simply investing in irrigation on the side. Uh, there may be some like that, but... For a lot of people, irrigating is their, is their main livelihood. So the fact that they're better off than non-irrigators suggests that actually that the source of that difference is coming from the fact that they're irrigating. Mm. So I think you know, the evidence is, is, is persuasive, we think, that people, farmers who are irrigating are better off and are doing better. So at some level, you th- one of the big questions then is, OK, how does this get... How does this um, advantage get spread more widely and so forth? And I think that's really one of the challenges mm. which policy is now going to have to look at. There are very interesting implications as well as to how those benefits vary by gender. We're yet to complete the analysis here, but the early indications are that for female-headed households in particular, um, you could see a remarkable increase in education levels of children according to irrigation activity. I think it was an extra year's education per child. Yeah. From the initial findings. For, for households that are headed by women, mm. specifically. Mm. The difference for households headed by men is less large than it is for households headed by women. So if you compare women-headed households who are either irrigating or not irrigating, then the, the advantage is even larger than it would be for, for male-headed households. So that's... You know, I mean, as Dan says, we still have some way to go to work out exactly how this plays out and look at how how it varies from one place to another. But the initial indications are that there are there are some quite quite interesting areas that could be followed up. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like farmer-led irrigation is a good thing. Is it that clear cut? Of course not. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, cut. There's this is a, a GDI. <laughs> if you talk to governments, I think one of the and certain irrigation departments, the thing that they would pinpoint, I think, would be environmental hazards, um, uh, upstream water use that's depriving um, uh, downstream water users, including hydropower schemes and so forth. 
um, that would certainly be one of the concerns. And often, if you look at government policy documents, the big concern they have is inefficiency of water use. Say so that, you know, one reason why they need to organise farmers uh, who are irrigating is to improve the efficiency of water use. So there's a concern with uh, a proliferation of water users who are going to introduce, who are going to basically create scarcity of water. Um, I think this is a legitimate concern, but I also think that you need to look at the specifics of each case before you can actually be sure that that's really uh, uh, valid in each case. We know at least of one example where accusations of um, uh, upstream removal of water by irrigators is being used as a justification for a problem with hydropower scheme and we know of publications that show that actually the problems are due to the operators themselves who are mismanaging their hydropower scheme rather than people upstream who are somehow depriving them of water. So, and this is really comes back to what Dan was saying is that actually this is a, this is a pretty polarised um, uh, arena in which uh, as soon as you mention water, everybody's going to talk about scarcity, everybody's going to talk about competition, and so on. And, and therefore, uh, you know that uh, small-scale, relatively poor, relatively politically um, not influential people are going to become a target for other, other users of water who are going to uh, see them as a threat. Mm. And so... Um, there will be these kinds of, of, mm. of discussions and certainly you see this in the way that uh, uh, irrigation organisations respond to this. And as I say, I think it's legitimate. You know, I mean, having thousands and thousands of small-scale uh, irrigators using water presents management problems, for sure. But if your category of small-scale irrigation is also therefore inefficient, therefore subsistence, therefore not commercially valuable, then you're automatically going to downgrade and, and devalue the contribution that these people are making to their own families, to the broader economy, to um, their societies around them. Um, if, however, you're able to think differently about farmer-led irrigation and see it as actually integrated with the states, integrated with markets, not necessarily inefficient... Um, but a response, an, an entrepreneurial response to, to new circumstances, then that makes possible all sorts of different policy responses. There are small-scale farmers all over the world. Do you have any inkling that what you have found in Africa may also be indicative of what's happening in other regions in the world? That's interesting because, in some ways, Africa's always been held up as the the problem case because it was felt that irrigation development is something that never happened in Africa. Um, a lot of what people write about irrigation development over the past half century or so in, in Africa uh, is, is about failures of investment or investment not being as productive as people had hoped. And that is always almost inevitably contrasted with Asia for example, uh, where irrigation use is much more is regarded as being much more well established, um, 
and is, is, is on a far larger scale, whether it's Southeast Asia or South Asia. You know, irrigation is, is considered to be much more prevalent in agriculture, whereas when people make those comparisons, they say, oh, look, uh, Africa doesn't have any irrigation. Uh, and I suppose one of the things we're turning on, our, on its head is to say, well, actually, it's not, because it's not because African farmers can't or won't or don't want to irrigate. There may be other reasons, but um, uh, I think the significance is perhaps that Africa isn't so massively different from other regions of the world as perhaps people have been claiming. And that may, uh, may make a bit of a dent in the sort of African exceptionalism argument which, which you get on many different levels. But I'm not sure that... I mean, it may well be that in other parts of the world there's also a lot of uh, irrigation going on that isn't officially recognised. Um, but uh, I think, it's, I think it, in that sense it's a particularly African problem because people have always assumed that African farmers don't irrigate. And what we're saying is actually they do. And the fact that they don't irrigate necessarily according to the rules or, or the, the um, uh, formats that were expected doesn't mean that uh, uh, it should be ignored. Okay, and I think the visibility of it is the first is, is is going to be a really big issue. Is that we hope, I think, that having raised this, people will start looking for that irrigation and starting to come to terms with it in a way which they haven't before. So the Safi Research Project is coming to an end as is our time, because I understand you have to scoot off. So yeah. tell us what, what comes next for this, this theme of research. Okay, well, we have quite a bit of writing to do. Um, we're, uh, we have a special issue agreed, which uh, we've drawn in not just work from Safi, but from elsewhere. Um, uh, we, we ran a workshop uh, last February where we brought in people from uh, out other uh, parts of Africa, uh, researchers from, from across sub-Saharan Africa to compare notes really on this and so that has, has generated um, uh, some uh, work on papers which we will be publishing uh, next February um, we're also working on a book um, which we hope to draw together in much more detail the work that we've done in SAFI um, beyond that there are a couple of uh, research bids in the pipeline which we've put together, one being led by uh, our Tanzanian collaborator Hans Komake, but using many of the um, uh, participants in the SAFI project. Um, other contacts we've had from the African Union uh, who have asked us to uh, provide some training for mid-career African agricultural scientists and uh, again Hans Komakek in, in Arusha is, is we are hoping will be able to provide that he's certainly been in contact with the African Union to set up that, that training programme because you've got three tasks now this work's been undertaken in Tanzania and Mozambique mm -hmm. and there are many more contexts many more countries where we suspect irrigation is under recognised and under reported then you've got the task of sensitising and working with policymakers so that they can Help look so they can see that, that this, these findings aren't necessarily a threat to their raison d'etre. And then you've got the task of working out well, how do you best support actually existing forms of irrigation which the state doesn't yet recognise? So you've all got very busy times ahead. I think this will keep us going for quite a, a while yet. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, we'll let you go then. Thank you very much for your time, Phil and Dan, and thank, thank you. you everyone for listening. <laughs>